0: Hello, and welcome to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carrie Smith, and I'm joined today by a special guest who goes by Grace Is For You on Twitter. Grace is the co-founder with her husband of a justice-oriented nonprofit, and she her story went viral a couple of months ago when she posted about her experiences as the founder of a company dealing with woke ideology from within the company. And I'm very happy to have her here as a guest today. I think that her story might offer some insight for people who are facing, uh, f- facing the growth of this ideology from within their own organization, whatever that organization may be. We've talked to people in the past who faced it from the outside, from mobs attacking them, but we've only talked to maybe one other person who's dealt with it as a business owner from inside their own company. Um, so I'm very excited about this. Grace, thank you for blessing us with your time and your insight today. Welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Carrie.
0: And I just have to get this out of the way because otherwise I'll be thinking about it the whole time. Everybody look at that dresser behind her.
1: It's one of my favorite.
0: <laughs> it's, it's the waterfall period. It's Art Deco. It's beautiful. Uh, yeah. I, love, my husband, I love
1: my husband's grandparents.
0: I husband. love that. Um, well, you have excellent taste. So we know that. So, t- so tell us a little bit about for anybody who your, your thread went viral. Everybody I know was sharing it. Even my neighbor texted me and said, read this. I said, oh, I hope I get to talk to her actually. Um, as I mentioned in t- in the introduction, I think your story is going to be very, helpful maybe to people in our audience who are dealing with this inside an organization or inside a church or inside a hobby group or company that they work at. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and as much as you're willing to share about the the formation of your company?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, So my husband and I, along with one other friend about 11 years ago, co-founded this nonprofit organization. Um, None of us are, clinical mental health professionals, but we were involved with a large nonprofit organization that was providing um, human rights advocacy services to survivors of various kinds of human rights abuses all over the world. And um, through our our volunteering with them, just learned about the situation and sort of the aftercare process, like with survivors of human trafficking, refugees, um, and began to be aware of this disparity or this, this need in mental health services uh, for survivors of trauma in these extremely um, complex and fragile contexts, um, mostly mm-hmm. in the developing world, the non-Western world. And the question that was sort of our light bulb moment that sparked the organization um, was, you know, our, what are what are the models of care being used in these contexts? And the answer was basically very Western models like cognitive behavioral therapy, for instance. And mm-hmm. um, there was a sense that these weren't always appropriate or the most effective models of care in, in some of these contexts. Um, and being professional musicians, my husband and I, we had the question mm-hmm. um, what about the arts? You know, how are the arts being used? And um, they said, well, every time we're able to get a licensed um, Clinical art therapists, dance therapists, music therapists, et cetera, to come. Um, it's great, you know. We see we see a lot of forward progress um, among the clients that we serve, but they're just these people don't exist in some of these contexts, there aren't programs that could train them and license them in, in a lot of these countries. And um, you know, we can only fly fly clinicians out for maybe a two week clinic or, or you know workshop, but then they have to go back home. So the question that came out was, well, what if we were to create a curriculum for lay people, but using various art modalities to um, to to help lay people better serve their clients um, in in growing resilience after trauma and, with things
0: like music therapy and art therapy, but
1: not therapy. So basically, okay. using the um, the principles from these disciplines. Um, but apply, but applied in it within a curriculum that would be safe and effective to be used by lay, people. by lay people. Exactly. That
0: is so interesting. I didn't know this part of your story. My uh, fiance is a musician. He used to do music therapy. And oh, wow. yeah, I'm very interested in it. I've seen, uh, there's a documentary people can watch. I think it's free on YouTube. It's been a while since I've seen it. It's about music therapy and Alzheimer's. Yeah, So the, interesting. Um,
1: Alive Inside?
0: Yes, yeah, that one. Mm-hmm. That's I didn't know that part of your story. Okay, so you have a very noble cause. You have an, uh, a niche that you see that's not being filled in a way that you can create this nonprofit and start to help. And it doesn't sound like it's a political thing at all. Uh, it's based around mental health. Uh, and so then what happens?
1: Yeah, so um, being non-clinical people and recognizing our need for expertise our first step was gathering an advisory council. So we just, we sought out, you know, the best people we could find and think of, you know, mm-hmm. in, in very um, reputable programs in academia um, and just started gathering an advisory council to to speak into what that curriculum should look like. And then began hiring staff, some clinicians, some not, um, to, to write and then begin the training program, begin doing the trainings. Um, and all of that, you know, took place over a couple years um, before we hosted our first pilot training with that large nonprofit organization that we had all been volunteering with the three of us co-founders. Um, we, we piloted with them in the Philippines um, in 2012. And um, yeah, just has grown from there. So we're... We have training staff um, who live in various parts of the world who we just employ on a contract basis, and then we had a central HQ kind of staff that were overseeing the training program, and it was from that central staff that the um, the ideological tension started mm-hmm. to to grow.
0: Right, and and so for the purposes of, uh, I guess just making ourselves more clear for anybody who maybe stumbled on our channel and doesn't know what ideology it is that we're about to talk about. Um, well, first of all, how would you describe yourself politically or do you, do you describe yourself politically at all?
1: Um, Yeah, I definitely am right. A center. I'm i I'm conservative. A little right. Meaning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but it wasn't, it wasn't so much a political yes. ideology that, you know, we, we intentionally hired very diverse people, um, you know, from different faith backgrounds, political backgrounds, you know, just belief exactly systems. Exactly. Every kind of identity. Um, even though my husband and I are Christian, we didn't want to make the organization a Christian organization You know, that would only employ Christians because we, right. would, we would be serving everyone in the world, or at least that was our goal. Yeah. Um, and so we wanted the strength that would come from all different kinds of perspectives, um, feeding into our, our, um, programs. So, well, for
0: anyone who's new to our channel and if you, and maybe if you don't know my background, uh, I'm, I still, I describe myself as a liberal, but more of a classical liberal, but I was in this belief system that you're about to talk about. And for any new people who may be watching, um, like you just said, this is not a political thing, actually. It's not a left-right thing so so much. I mean, it, we tend to talk about it in those terms sometimes, but this this ideology that started to seep into your company um, is not liberalism. I just want to make that really clear before we get into it. This isn't about, oh, it's a conservative and she had some liberals at her organization. That's not the way to read this at all. So, so why don't you tell us a little bit about, like, how did you first start to come come into contact with this belief system in your organization?
1: Right. I think this is an important way to tell the story because the way the thread that, you know, got a lot of attention, the way it was laid out, it's all a tidy story, you know, like Mm -hmm. this happened and this happened, and then we did this and then this, you know, happened and then we were successful. But, um, thinking back to the beginning, I mean, it's hard to say when the beginning was, because it was a gradual sort of becoming aware of, we don't think the same about (laughs) some of these terms that we're using, you know, the shared terms on justice, for instance, um, as some of our staff, and it was really disorienting. Um, I think because we, you know, I think like many organic grassroots projects, you realize things you need as you go, and then you have to Kind of go back and lay the groundwork and be like, oh, maybe we hadn't established this clearly enough, and now we need to do some work. So, for instance, organizational definitions of terms became really necessary right. as we as we started to see that we were we were missing each other. You know, like as as um, we assumed a certain framework for understanding justice and doing work in the world that is just, we realized that some of our staff did not have that same conception. Um,
0: what were some of those other words that you realized you had different definitions for?
1: Well, honestly just didn't know a lot of the words that were being used and now I do but mm-hmm. um, you know hegemonic and normativity and <laughs> all these yeah. words that are kind of getting around the idea that there is nothing absolutely true there's nothing objectively true. There are just socially constructed truths that are positional mm-hmm. based on a person's various, identities which within this framework are all political identities. Mm-hmm. Um and so especially coming from a Christian framework, that is just so foreign. Um mm-hmm. where there's there's so much emphasis on seeing each individual as a unique creation. You know, and so you you approach each person as um you know having an Infinite complexity that you want to uncover and know and understand, um, and so this sort of this sort of um, meta narrative of people exist in collectives based on their identities, and those collectives um, are either oppressed or oppressing based <laughs> on their their social position. Um, it just took it was really disorienting to try to wrap our heads around what how how did you get there and Um, really only had the rhetoric kind of to start with, because I think another important point to make and has been made by many people is there are varying degrees to which people who employ this ideology even understand it themselves. Yes,
0: yes. Um, mm -hmm. That's a great point. Because the architects of it, I think are, they're aware of, uh, of, of some of the language games that they're playing. And the mental gymnastics that they're asking of the people who then go out and speak it, thats this is my opinion. But when you get it distilled down and it trickles down to, for example, when you see this ideology now being taught in elementary schools um, in the form of critical race theory, or something like critical race theory, when it's distilled from the mouth of babes, like little kids, when they summarize it, they, it loses all the pseudo academic veneer. And it's simply, you know, what did you learn today? Oh, I learned white people are bad. And that's what it is when you strip away all of the pseudo intellectual veneer. And it it also will sometimes I've noticed I say out of the mouth of babes and morons, because occasionally I'll I'll talk to someone. There's an entertainment executive I used to know when I when I worked in L.A. And he just recently went through some forced diversity, diversity, inclusion, equity training, one of these ideological, um, indoctrinations at, uh, I believe it was Warner media group. Anyway, he contacted me out of the blue. And, and he said to me, grace, I said, you know, he, he was calling me names, you know, because I speak against my old ideology. And I said, you know, your ideology, I was in it for 20 years. It tells people to judge and treat people differently on the basis of race. And he said, like a child with everything stripped away. He said, yes, it does. We must, we must treat people differently on the basis of race. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, out of the mouth, out of your mouth, it loses all of those big words. It loses all the justification. And it just simply is like, this is what it is.
1: Right. Um, yeah. Eventually you get to plain speaking and the plain speaking is terrifying, but yeah. they, have, they have to obfuscate and, and gatekeep. And, um, Jargonize everything because I think I think part of the reason that is happening is some of the people who are espousing this actually don't fully understand it themselves, and maybe they mm-hmm. intuit that there are some incoherencies um, because maybe they are still holding on to classical liberal values mm-hmm. um, and they're trying to you know um, around the individual and justice, but then they're embracing this this um, Postmodern concoction within this social justice social philosophy um, that that makes those liberal values impossible to hold. Right. So so you start to you start to see that they're they're sort of grappling with those inco- incoherencies within themselves if they haven't really fully examined the thing themselves. Um, but also, I mean, I think I think one of the reasons they have to obfuscate is there's just nothing there. It's it's unsubstantiated in terms of the you know, if you talk about data or any sort of rigorous academic base for this theory is just not there so it's 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 assertions like when you re- get right down to it the the central tenets of the theory are assertions they're they're like philosophical statements that are not rooted to the ground mm-hmm. um, so yes. that's how you so, get a lot of bluster and just sort of intimidation is like it is this way whiteness is you know the problem in the world and you're like if you start asking why instead of um reasoned substantiated defense you get a personal attack you know like oh well you would only ask that because you don't want to investigate your complicity in in you know the structures the oppressive structures of whiteness or whatever you know? yeah. which obviously isn't an answer yeah so somebody who is new to
0: hearing about this ideology or maybe has been seduced by parts of themselves they might ask well what's the harm in listening to another point of view about the mental health and justice, right? And so how did this, How were you guys open-minded at first to some of what people were saying? And then how did this ideology manifest itself in your company or in your nonprofit? And uh, to what, like, what was the consequence of it? Growing yeah. there?
1: Um, yes, we were very interested. We cared deeply about these people and they were people that we had worked with for years at that point. Um, and we wanted to understand, especially because part of what was being told to us was that harm was happening. So anytime someone you care about says they're being harmed or they're aware of harm, you want to know how how that harm is happening and how to stop the harm from happening. So yeah, we were very um interested in understanding, but it was in leaning in to really understand that it it just became more and more is like one of those paintings where from far away you can see something, but as you get closer and closer, it's just a mess of you know, so it's just yeah. like how you in. And this is this is a key point because I think as people become more and more alarmed by how this ideology is spreading, there's this reactionary sort of faction that says, well just shut it down, you know, just just uh, strong arm it out of everything. And I'm like, well I don't I don't think so because that was sort of proving their theory, right? That I agree. People in the positions of power just just say no and they don't actually care about the truth. Um, So while it's really hard to stay in a humble posture of listening when you're being personally attacked and when your entire plausibility structure, your worldview is being ripped to shreds, I think that it is the right posture to really listen. And obviously there's different contexts you know like if it's if it's just a one-off interaction with someone who's being rude to you whatever but i mean in a, in a um in a situation like this where we had a community with these people we knew them we had a relationship with them it would not have been right to just say oh that sounds crazy no sorry we're not we're not talking about that um and so we really did We really did lean in and invested quite a bit of organizational energy into just listening and, and trying to understand. But honestly, that was their undoing.
0: <laughs> because you did start listening and you did try to understand, like actually understand and not, I think a lot of times what they depend on is like you see these big corporations now that are speaking social justice ideology. And um, I think what they depend on is that people just not really looking at it And just saying, it sounds good on the surface, diversity, inclusion, sure. What do you want us to put in the post? Um, You know, what do you want us to say? And not really paying attention to it. Or also maybe speaking it out of fear of being on... Because the the people who push this claim to have this moral high ground. That this is... It's not just a... um, it, it is a way of looking at the world, but it's also this is why I sometimes compare it to religion. It's a moral a system of morality. They view themselves as on the side of good. And so I think they rely maybe on people not looking very deeply and saying, well, I want to be on the side of good. I'm going to speak this. So you guys started looking deeply and trying to understand the belief system. And, and so like, what did you find?
1: Yeah, um, it well, was, it was overwhelming at first, and I think that that's a good thing to be honest about, is because I think a lot of people are still in that overwhelmed stage, mm-hmm. you know, just like whoa, like this is such a big thing, and it's even putting language around what it is is hard because it's not, it's not a pure academic social philosophy, it's not purely critical theory, it's not, um, it, it's, <laughs> it, it has a snowball that has picked up all kinds of stuff going down a a hill over the last hundred years. And, um, so again, I just think some of the confusing nature of it is that people who people who have understood the surface level of the jargon and the lists of what's right and what's wrong and have just embraced that haven't dug a ton deeper than that Mm -hmm. themselves. Um, and I guess I would say to, to start my own process of learning, all I had was that surface level, was just the vocabulary, you know. So I started there, and I think it was intersectionality was a word that was used mm-hmm. a lot that first sort of tipped me off to, okay, this sounds like a, a fairly well-formed um, conception of reality that they're they're using to to describe, you know, social, Interactions and and systems of power and oppression. So I need to start there. And so yeah, um, just started doing some reading and found um, some of the primary source stuff. You know, from Kimberly Crenshaw and mm-hmm. um, and that of course the layers started from there. Like okay, where was that coming from and where was that coming from? And you get back to critical theory and Marxian social philosophy, and um, you start to you start to see how the philosophy is informing this, this cultural language and, and mode of being, but isn't even necessarily examined by those who are, who are pushing doing it. it. Mm-hmm. That's,
0: that's a great point. It's not examined by a lot of the people who are pushing, especially now, because now it's so mainstream and so many people are pushing it. I see, I mean, I see people I would stereotype as soccer moms, you know, who are now in Facebook groups, pushing social justice. They have recent converts and they don't really understand what they're pushing. And if you if you try and say to them, this is a form of collectivism,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's opposed to individualism. They don't even know what those words mean. Yeah. <laughs> they don't even know what that means. Mm-hmm. So how do you get people to look at and thoroughly examine their belief system when um they haven't even thought about the differences of those two, like the meaning of words, right? What does collectivism mean? And, and the strange thing is they will pick up phrases and they repeat things without really knowing what they mean. So for example, I don't know if you, when you started reading all the source material, Robin DeAngelo has got the really popular book right now, white fragility. She openly, attacks individualism in that book like even it it, I think somewhere close to the beginning even she's attacking individualism and I've noticed that some of these sort of new converts if you start to talk about collectivism versus individualism they don't know what those words mean and they haven't thought about it but they know they've heard that individualism is bad so they'll just turn off their they won't listen because now you're arguing on behalf of something they've heard is bad Mm-hmm. that's the way in which when you talk about it being a snowball rolling down a hill, that's the way in which it operates sort of like a cult in my mm-hmm. opinion, is that a lot of the people who push it have been um, sort of discouraged from doing any thinking
1: mm-hmm. uh, at all. No, absolutely. Discouraged and even intimidated because to ask some of these questions mm-hmm. is for the proof of the theories, you know, to, to challenge the assumption is to prove that that you you can't see the injustice that, that you would even have to ask shows that you can't see what is obvious to everyone else. And it also shows that you are fragile, you know, to use Robin Diaz yeah. in those words that you, you don't want to investigate and become a better person, you know, but it is very religious in nature. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think a good tactic to use with, with people like that who seem like they maybe have a surface level understanding is to provide contrast. So to say, okay, I hear you saying that there's there's something I must do to be moral, but at the same time, this philosophy says that all morality is positional. So so how can how can there be something that's truly moral, you know, for me to do? You're 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 suggesting that there's a way to be right, while underneath this it says there actually is no right, there is no right or wrong objectively mm-hmm. speaking. Um, and if they would say, well, I don't believe in that, you know, then like then you don't even understand the theory that you're espousing. Yeah. Um, and, and so I mean it, again like there's there's varying degrees of, of, of knowledge so it's sort of an issue of discernment to to figure out where a person is at um, in their understanding of the philosophy but um, I do think that listening is really important and yeah. and engaging in dialogue um, and not just just shouting down because I mean that's sort of the world that, they are creating and I don't want to Yeah,.
0: To it. I agree. It's the same behavior. I've been thinking a lot about this. It's sort of, you can't, you can't fight a bad ideology by employing the same tactics. Cause then what sets you apart from them at all? Well, you know, really So sort of at the end of the day, if you're going to part of, part of what this ideology does is, is say, like you're saying, it's creating a world where they want to shout people down. It's rule by force. Mm-hmm. rule by, you know, one opinion only allowed, by totalitarianism, you know, and by authority, by force. And to then try and say, well, we're going to use those things. We're going to use authority and force to keep this bad ideology out. Well, from where they're standing, they don't see any difference. Why would they consider coming to your side? Because you're now doing the same things they're doing. I don't know. I don't see. Right.
1: Why. Exactly. I think, I think how we treat people speaks more than necessarily even what we say. And yes. you, can't, you can't guarantee that they'll ever come over, but you must maintain your integrity. I think that's a big part of what happens here is they, they drag you down into the mud because it's it's so much based on personal attack. And I think it's just so natural to then start to try to defend yourself. And I think that's where people go wrong.
2: Yes. Because the minute you
1: start trying to defend yourself personally, it's like, no, no, I'm a good person and I'm not a racist. And this that's like, you've lost. A time. You've lost. You've already you lost. Win, you cannot win that fight. And so, it, my preacher says I'm going to mangle this, but it's something to the effect of,
0: like, if we must lose, like, if you must lose, it, do so without losing your dignity.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Which is why I think there's no getting around having a base level of the philosophy And when I posted that thread, maybe the most um, common theme in the comments was, will you write a playbook for me so I can do this? (laughs) And I was like, I don't know if I can, honestly, other than a playbook that step one is you need to learn a lot. Um, And there's no no shortcutting that step because if you don't want it to become about you defending yourself, you have to keep the conversation on the ideas And if you want to keep the conversation on the ideas, you have to know something about the ideas. And it's actually great if you know more than they do about the ideas, because then you can show them, no, no, I understand where you're coming from. And I understand the perspective. And I can even sympathize with the perspective in certain ways. And then here's where we part ways because of my commitments to whatever objective truth, um, evidence-based justice, you know, Um, whatever it might be. So Yes. Okay. So if you were, I know you said you can't do a playbook, (laughs) but
0: for people who are watching this, who maybe have encountered this in their small business that they own. And I I have friends who have, um, or maybe encountered it in their church because it's starting to move into churches or in their hobby group. Um, once you realize what it was you would say like the f- one step is you need to learn a lot learn a lot about the ideology so you can keep the focus on the ideology and not on you as a person
1: mm-hmm. that's a
0: that's a great bit of advice grace because they their number one tactic is ad hominem their number one mm-hmm. tactic is to make it about you the person and say mm-hmm. you are a racist you are a sexist you are immoral essentially you know you are all these awful things you are white they point to your race they point to your sex and if you have an understanding of the belief system itself, you can keep pulling it back to that. Um, So what would be another thing that you, what were some of the things, well, well maybe instead of bullet pointing it, why don't you just tell us what you guys did?
1: Um, Yeah. So I learned a lot. Um, What's funny is some of the first accusatory statements against us was you, you need to go get an education, you know, in that kind of snarky way of like, you don't mm-hmm. understand my struggle, but we did go get an education. Yes. <laughs> that was didn't work out so well. Um, but um, I, a couple resources that I recommend to a lot of people, um, a guy named Neil Shenvey has a blog and he has done book reviews of basically every primary source related to critical theory. And so for the person who doesn't have time to read a monster stack of Academic books um, on social philosophy; these book reviews just really helped me kind of digest and outline form the ideas. Um, and then for the people who are ready for a deeper dive, I think James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose's book "Cynical Theories" is is a more robust, um, yes, comprehensive understanding. So t- two different levels of kind of getting that education. Yes, um,
0: and Neil Shenvey is. S H E N V I. Yep. Cool. Okay. Uh, Great. So learn. So you guys got an education. You went out and you got yourself educated. That's by the way, some of their catchphrases we sometimes play having been in it for two decades. I know a lot of it. I know a lot of the lingo. It is funny when I come, when I come across the newbies in it who tell me i need to get educated because it's very <laughs> qu- quickly understood that i know a lot more than they do about this belief system um but we, sometimes we came up with just for fun i think it's really important to for, to have a sense of humor and make fun of this belief system it is worth mocking because mm-hmm. culturally we have to get back to a place where we can look at this and say yeah this is absurd these are bad Amen.
1: ideas Amen. these are really bad
0: ideas so mm-hmm. we did um sjw bingo and Uh, two of the things on SJW bingo relate to this one is it's not my job to educate you. They will say that they say that when they say you need to get educated, but also uh, I don't actually know any of the source material or, and I can't link you. It's a, it's an easy way to get out of defending their beliefs. It's like, I'm too lazy to make an argument or to provide evidence. So I'm just going to say, it's not my job, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is funny. And then the, the one related to that is when they say, um, "Oh, it would be emotional labor for me to educate you." <laughs> so you're you're exploiting me by asking mm-hmm. me to provide evidence to back up mm-hmm. my claims.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Ooh, on that you. on that point, another resource that helped me a ton was the coddling of the American mind. Yes, um, yeah, uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff's book. Yeah. So I, I used that material to to write some of the position papers that we needed. Yeah, that's amazing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, okay, so you got educated, and the, mm-hmm. and then what happened? So yeah, the next step was writing. I wrote um I wrote some documents that would become internal kind of guiding documents for our organization. And again, this is where my husband and I, having some authority as the co founders. Um, I understand put us in a position that a lot of people don't have the leverage that we had if they were just an employee, for instance, Um, and they run the real risk of, you know, even losing their job um, if they speak up, although there are good resources in that vein as well. I think um, on James Lindsay's blog New discourses, there's a great template um, for a letter for employees to write to their employer's very humble in tone, um, but straightforward, just basically suggesting that these ideas, you know, be investigated more deeply. And, and it's, it's just a, it's a great resource for people in that position.
0: I will also plug counterweight, which is Mm -hmm. uh, organization and they provide support for people in the workplace who are coming up against this ideology in the form of like mandatory DEI trainings or pledges They try to get pledges like these loyalty oaths.
1: Yeah, no, that's Um, great. They're they're doing great stuff. Um, But for us, since we had some leverage, um, and I would suggest this to anyone who's managing a team or who who owns their business or runs their organization, to just be very principled in how you lay out the process that that is going to happen. Um, And I do think there should be a process. I don't think that it's the right thing to just try to shut this down or to appease. Um, So those are sort of the two ends of the spectrum that I think neither one is good. Mm-hmm. I think leaning into the process and having the conversation, the ideology will be exposed because it's so misaligned with reality that the more you ask someone to explain it, you see the inc- inconsistency yes. and the incoherence of it. Um so that's what we did basically is is go like we we determined for our organization that we were going to abide by certain definitions of safety. For instance, that was the first one because mm-hmm you can't have healthy conversations if someone's accusing you of harm merely because of your words and ideas. So that right there shuts down good faith dialogue. And that's what was happening is, you know, as we, before we got a handle on what this was, we were, we would try to have conversations and then we'd have follow-up emails and, and letters saying I was harmed in that conversation. So it's like, well, Okay. Then, you know, then you're on eggshells just constantly. Like I can't even speak, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's sort of what is wanted, right? Is that you would not speak, that you would just listen. and that It's, a, it's abusive.
0: Mm-hmm. That is, it's manipulation. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like people who, people with personality disorders who threaten suicide when they're not getting what they want. It's sort of a, um, a way of controlling people. It's a manipulative way of controlling people. Mm-hmm. You can't have an opinion because it harms me and right. you wouldn't want me to be harmed with you.
1: Mm-hmm. you know? Right. I, I to, be charitable, to be charitable though, I think some of the people doing this honestly aren't attempting in a sadistic way to manipulate and abuse. They really have believed that the framework that um, certain identities just inherently are oppressive and they don't see the oppression they're causing. And so, if once you've really believed that, if you're say mm-hmm. a woman talking to a man, you are just on guard constantly. Yeah, like it is sort of a conspiracy theory in that way: is that you you're just assuming that there is harm in everything, and so then yeah, you, I mean we talk about this in trauma care. Trauma is not necessarily what happened, but the meaning you've made of what happened. Oh,
0: so yeah, so
1: that is there's a there is a reality to that that they they actually are feeling harm. Now, whether that's warranted or not is another, another question. Um, but to be charitable, I, I don't think that our employees were just trying to abuse us. I think that they really did believe. believe that we did not have the critical consciousness that they did to see harm that was being perpetrated within all societal structures. Yeah, um, and that we were perpetrating that harm by not listening in the way that they expected us to listen and agree. Um, so, yeah, and then there are people who who are just manipulative and abusive and know know that they're they're silencing dialogue on purpose, right. you know, to to get power or whatever. So,
0: this is one of the most. I'm glad you brought that up, and you were charitable at that point because this is this is one of the. The reasons that there's a couple reasons that I call my old ideology evil, social justice evil. One is that because it it takes a lot of well-intentioned people who want to oppose racism and sexism, and it turns them into puppets for the very thing they think they're fighting, and it it gets them to they turns them into mouthpieces for racism and sexism, Mm -hmm. and they think they're doing the opposite. And I think that is evil to turn people into fit soldiers for something they oppose. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other reason is because Uh, it's so twisted that it, for the people who are well-intentioned or who, who believe it, who, who come to believe it. And and, and the people who believe, for example, that having a conversation with a person of a different race or sex than them um, is going to be harmful, that it really handicaps them. That's what does them harm. It's doing them great harm and it, and it's, it's handicapping them in life. and. It's, it's not healthy. It's not mentally yep. healthy. So I yep. I think it's evil for a number of reasons, but that's probably, that's high up there on the list. So yep. anyway, thank yep. you for- And
1: to that point, being a trauma organization, <laughs> we had to have a very frank conversation at some point with our licensed mental health professional employees about that very point about crippling people in an attempt to help because, so, so one tool that we use in our trainings is- um It's called a window of tolerance scale, which is kind of an academic name, but essentially it's kind of a way of checking in with yourself on what mode you're acting out of. So this is a useful tool for trauma survivors in terms of seeing how their coping mechanisms may actually be doing them harm in the long run. Um, So they're they're self-preservation techniques, but we need to learn how to... um, adapt our coping mechanisms to be more healthy over time okay so so in the middle of the window of tolerance scale is sort of the green zone the optimal zone where you're acting out of um intentional decision making and you're you're calm you're able to use all your faculties and then at the high end of the scale would be the fight flight zone you know so the hyper aroused is what that's called where instead of being able to calmly and rationally respond to a situation you react you know like um Mm -hmm and you go into fight or flight. And then at the bottom end of the scale would be um, hypo arousal or the freeze zone where you just shut down and, and sort of numb yourself because you're unable to cope um, mm. with whatever is happening in your environment. So we use that scale to show our employees how essentially what, and this isn't something they teach at our training. So it was just so ironic, but that the way that they were responding to us and interacting in these conversations was essentially shrinking that window of tolerance to a hair's breadth. Because you know, if, if suddenly you know, words and other people's opinions and and thoughts are harmful, you're you're immediately out of that zone. You know, you're in yeah. I'm being harmed mode. You're in like this panic and fear mode anxiety mode. Versus being able to um, considerately digest what other people are bringing to you and it was just uh, my husband actually had that revelation he's like they're teaching this thing that they're not doing <laughs> you know yeah um and yeah it was, that's amazing it was, it was it was just so revelatory you know that um if we we say we're trying to help people become more resilient through trauma this this social philosophy will not achieve that it, it makes people much weaker and um much less capable of interacting in the world where they will constantly be faced with, with people who don't like their ideas or agree with their presuppositions or whatever. So, yeah.
0: yeah. That's a great point. That book that you recommended, Cobbling of the American Mind, I think that's a really great one for addressing that. Mm -hmm. Um, So you started to come up with some definitions and you started to write some in, internal documents, uh, guiding principles, it sounds like. Um, and then what came out of that?
1: Yeah. So, so the, the team had requested all org sessions, um, which, you know, is a common theme, I think amongst organizations going through something like this, they demand training sessions or they demand, you know, we want, we want everyone in power in the room. We want all the board members and all the, you know, um, anyone with any executive status in the room so that they can hear our, you know, our grievances. Um, So we're like, okay, we'll do that. But ahead of those sessions, we're laying some groundwork for terms. And and we're going to, we're going to read these things together and talk through them with highlighters and pencils. And you can, you can disagree where you want to disagree, but we're going to we're going to talk about safety in these terms and we're we're going to talk about what evidence based means in these terms. We're yeah. going to talk about neutrality in these terms and you you can disagree but you're going to have to substantiate your disagreements. Um and so I think that just again leaning into what they were saying but requiring intentionality around what words mean really sort of undid their arguments because they could not substantiate Um, their arguments like we were doing with data.
0: They can't do that.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: That's amazing that you, that you required that because they, it's all in the, it's all in the realm of um, sort of what you touched on before the postmodern influence on this belief system that says there is no objective truth. And, you know, there's my truth and there's your truth and, and, and there's, they're not used to providing evidence. A lot of the phrases, a lot of the words the the control of language that has been developed in this belief system is, I think it's done with the intention of weaseling out of letting people slip out of having to provide that evidence. So Mm -hmm. phrases that they'll repeat, like it's not my job to educate you or, you know, that would be emotional labor. um, Those, those things are meant to, it's a, it's a defense so the person speaking to them is like, oh, this is my get-out-of-jail-free card. I don't have to, you know, provide evidence for this. Um, but even one of, the, one of the basic tenets of the belief system, which you kind of highlighted earlier, is um, it, tells, it tells the people who follow it that that conversation is impossible anyway between two individuals who are of a different race or of a different sex because there's a power imbalance there. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they shouldn't even enter into those conversations
1: mm-hmm. or
0: feel a need to defend themselves because the, the conversation is unequal, mm-hmm. and that one person has more power in the conversation. It's such a, it's such a duplicitous way of keeping people from talking and right. from seeing each other as fully formed individuals.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and again, and it was just so inconsistent with what we were attempting to do as an organization because we. We are training people all over the world, so we're training every identity, so to speak. You know, every Mm -hmm. cultural, religious, gender, sexual, every single identity in the world exists at our trainings, and we have these trainers up front. And so we we even said to them at some point, isn't that a power imbalance? You know, that you're up there at the front teaching these things to people who have identities that, compared to your identity, would be marginalized, and yet you're Mm -hmm. up here. You're up here telling them what's right. You know, you're you're proclaiming something to be good. You're saying here is here's knowledge that you should have around trauma. And so it's like, doesn't isn't that inconsistent with what you're saying that, you know, like the the person with the um the normative identity or the the centralized identity in the hegemonic structure should only listen and receive. And yet here you are up here with your your degree and your you know American identity Telling people in these these fragile contexts something they should know—it just doesn't make any sense within the ideology yeah. because the ideology says there are no fixed norms. So you have to—you'd yeah. have to take that to be true within the mental health realm too, which is obviously disastrous. There have to be fixed norms for health. There has to be health and unhealth, which is objective. Yeah. <laughs> um, so again, it, just, it breaks down entirely as soon as you try to. Say anything as soon as you try to profess anything from a, a an objective place.
0: Grace, you're just making me smile now because I'm I'm learning a little more about you. And boy, they don't they didn't know what they were coming up against at your organization. <laughs> you're like, um, okay, I will go educate myself. <laughs> I am going to learn what all this means. Wow. Okay, so you had these. You had these uh was it like a couple of sessions in?
1: You had these sessions where people did this It was it was it was like a year and a half wow of of sessions every every two to three months, maybe. Because of course they were never satisfied. It never resolved. So right. there was never an end. There was always some loose end that was, you know, we still feel harmed and or you know, we feel like these our concerns are not being addressed. And what was so disheartening was, you know, doing a deep dive into whichever topic they were making assertions about, I would then come back to them with as much of the best peer-reviewed research I could find and say, well, here's how this doesn't really add up to what you're asserting. And they would then turn around and say something like, well, I have this deeply held conviction based on my allyship with such and such community or whatever. Yeah. So this really isn't about uh, trying to understand what's real at all. No, a deeply held
0: conviction based on that's, that's a cult. Mm -hmm. You're I know. And 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 it sounds harsh when I say it, but look, I was in the cult. If anybody who is in it is watching this and tempted to get angry, I was in it for 20 years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It can take a long time to, to understand that you're in one. I think sometimes there's also a fear of, um, people don't want to start to open their eyes to any inconsistencies in, in their own belief system or to exa- really examine it because they don't want to look stupid or they don't want to feel stupid or they think, Oh, well, only stupid people join cults and only stupid people get pulled into bad ideology. And that's not true. Some of the most intelligent people I know, um, who are in this belief system it originated at elite institutions I was indoctrinated in it at Duke University. I know people who are in you know who are really intelligent. It's just that the way that Carter my co-host usually puts it and he's not with us here today but he says you know if you're on if you're on the wrong road, having a higher IQ it's just a better engine in the car you're just going to get to that bad place faster. (laughs) You just have a good engine.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's a great point. These are not, these are not stupid people at all. Every single one of these people, my husband hired because they were impressive people. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, With, with excellent qualities about their character. Um, And again, I think this is why a posture of humility actually is the answer, um, even though that feels really counterintuitive because in the end, I don't think power is defeated with just more raw power. If you have a commitment to absolute truth, you can trust the process of a dialogue, even if the other person doesn't, that they will eventually show their cards, so to speak, in that what they are asserting is, an ideological house of cards. <laughs> yes. There's just nothing there. And so um, what they then do with that is is on them, you know. And essentially each of those people who were deeply committed, you know, in, in sort of a religious or cult sense, just left the organization, but we didn't we didn't fire anyone. And we wanted to that we wanted to walk the process through to the end on principle because we so believe in objective truth. And we believe that we still believe in the idea of discourse that will allow the best idea to emerge triumphant. <laughs> um, okay, Grace, walk
0: me through this because I know there are going to be some people who do know what this ideology is and who do push back against it, who will disagree with you. And I've Mm -hmm. seen, even, I think James Lindsay has said you should fire these people if they are pushing this ideology. Um, I agree with him to a point. I think you should fire people if they are, if their involvement in this ideology is, is preventing them from doing the job that you hired them to do. Mm -hmm. And, but I don't think you should fire them simply because they have this ideology um, because I think that's what you're talking about. that's meeting raw power, the raw power. and I, um, but but walk me through why you guys chose not to fire anyone. What was this, you know, it was you said it was a year and a half of these what sounds like struggle sessions. Was this ideology preventing some of these people from doing their job? And if it was, why did you choose not to fire them?
1: No, it wasn't. And that's a really important oh. I think I think its well, okay, so I can answer it on two levels. We were able to continue to to fulfill the mission of our organization, which is to provide training, um, to lay care providers around trauma. And so we were able to still do that the whole time, even though a lot of our internal organizational energy was being drained through these sessions and this process, even though I'm a volunteer for the organization. So all of my work in writing, um, and the preparation I was doing ahead of these sessions, wasn't draining the organization's resources. It wasn't, you know, requiring any staff to be diverted from what they were doing, so in that sense, the organization was to go on was able to go on functioning, even though we were managing a lot of dysfunction internally. But at the same time, that what the staff were pushing for, which is what forced these conversations, was the inclusion of affirmative care into the curriculum around gender identity, um, which was a red flag for us because, first of all, we don't. We don't provide care. We don't provide therapeutic care, and and our curriculum is not a model of care. It's a it's a training. It's an educational curriculum um, for non clinicians. So as soon as they said, you know, we need to be able to embrace affirmative care and include that in our curriculum, we were like, how? You know, how does that even work? right um and we didn't understand the the model of care at first so again another thing that i had to read about and understand but um well they
0: use these phrases like affirmative care mm-hmm. in place of what they're actually talking about
1: right but, which yeah. is which is the idea that um well it, it is it's 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 a blanket affirmation you know that if somebody mm-hmm. says something about their identity you just absolutely agree with them no matter what, but this is, this is meant for again, clinical spaces um, and we don't operate that way. So um, yeah, I sort of lost my train of thought.
0: Wait, so they were, they were saying that one of the red flags you said was when they started to say that you needed to offer affirmative care around gender identity and you guys are not, that's not what you're geared towards doing anyway. We were talking about why you didn't fire anyone.
1: Right. Okay. So yes. Um, while we were able to still have our trainings and, and fulfill our organization's mission, they were beginning to include practices at the trainings that were, were alarming to us. Like, um, that because it's not enough to just have an open welcome to to all people saying, please share with us whatever you'd like to know about you. They need to intentionally inject the category of gender identity into the space, or the people who have that identity will feel invisible in the space is, is how the ideology works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, I like, can't stop my funny. eye roll on this. I can't stop it. It's right, such nonsense. It's not, that is not
0: really why they're injecting it. I mean, I know you know that.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. But, um, but that was the claim, and we wanted to investigate that claim, right? We didn't want to just say, well, there's no way that's possible. We, we wanted to do some research, so we did. Um, but anyway, yeah, so while they were able to continue doing their jobs, we became concerned that, and this is sort of how the ideology works, is it's a lot of gatekeeping and credentialism. So while my husband was their boss and said, based on the research, you should not be doing this thing that you're doing. He doesn't have a clinical degree. So they would say, Well, we're the ones with the expertise and you can't tell us how to to exercise our licensure, you know, in this in this space, even though they were not um they were not operating in any therapeutic capacity within our organization. So it was a bluff. But um the, that credentialism and that kind of gatekeeping of knowledge is a a huge ploy of, of the ideology is mm-hmm. it's all sort of special knowledge, like Gnosticism. So there's, there's the one side of it that is credentialism, you know, that I have a degree in gender studies or whatever, even though it's like, you look at the source material there and you're like, oh, this is a bunch of, <laughs> <whatever."> <laughs> by the um, way, I
0: should let you know, Grace, I do have a degree in gender studies, it's uh, oh, a no. minor. And but back then it was called women's studies before we found out that it was problematic to, to call it women's studies.
1: Ah, right. Okay. So, so you're talking so to an,
0: an, a credentialed expert.
1: So you're. The expert. <laughs> I should probably stop talking then. <laughs> but then the other kind of the other kind of credentialism is identity based, right? Like this identity based gnosticism that you know. I can't say anything about race if I'm a white person, or I can't say anything Mm -hmm. about non-binary identities if I'm a cisgender person, you know? So immediately, like, that's just a kind of gatekeeping that does not work in a, in a organization where somebody is trying to make decisions based on evidence for the, the, um, the most safety possible within, within that context is being told, sorry, you don't even get to weigh in because we're the ones with the identity or the credential um, is just obviously a big problem. Yeah. So this was starting to happen, but they were still
0: able to, for the most part, they were still able to perform their job. And Mm -hmm. so you guys chose not to fire anyone. And instead you kept listening and you kept doing these sessions and then What happened to, and and, and by the way, how many people are we talking about? Like, I don't know if you're comfortable sharing the size of your organization or not, or was it a lot of people within the organization? Was it maybe half or less than half
1: or? Yeah. Um, I don't want to get too specific, but the, the, the entire headquarters team was about 10 people and it was Basically, just my husband and I disagreeing with the rest at one point. Wow. Other than okay. other than board members, who I think were just trying to figure out what was going on when they when right. they were brought into the conversation, so they they were, I think, fairly neutral. Um, yeah. But yeah, the it was almost the entire headquarters staff. You know, I've I've got
0: I've mentioned I have friends who've dealt with this in their organization before. Um, I have a friend who dealt with it at their company. Uh, I'll also be, I should be vague probably. And I think from the outside looking in, sometimes people who are not small business owners or haven't been in the situation, if they are, they don't understand how it could hamstring a person um, because there's sort of, but that's your company. It's your company, you know, take charge. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you put it in those, you lay it out in numbers like that. It's, it's pretty obvious. It's sort of, the whole you you can get to a point where this ideology is so invasive that it's pretty much the whole of the leadership mm-hmm. of an organization can be can become of this one mm-hmm. mindset. And then you, as the founder or as in the case of my friend, like you know, the owner uh, of the company are are on the out are you know <laughs> not in a position anymore of of simply um dictating unless you want to behave like a dictator, which it, it, you, you clearly didn't want to do. My friend didn't want to do. So anyway, you followed this process. And mm-hmm. over a period of time, people started to leave of their own accord.
1: Yeah. And, and I again, to stay true to my principles of seeing people as individuals, obviously each of the people who were part of um, encouraging this ideology to be Embraced in different ways. They had different ways of going about that, and different degrees to which they were committed to it, and different conceptions of it. So it was not just, you know, obviously, um, we talk about woke mobs, and that's even been language that has was used in my thread and in um, some articles that I've been asked to sh- to share the story in. But um, obviously, each of these people were individually um, approaching mm-hmm. the ideas and and speaking to them. Um, so each person left individually in their own way, although it all happened fairly quickly—like mm-hmm. about a month. Within a month, they all left. Um, again, in varying degrees of of um, dissatisfaction with us and with the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, some with with greater animosity towards us as people. Others with just, I think, sort of a sense of disappointment. So. Yeah. And
0: since this has all happened, what was it about it that made you, because you decided to come out and, and write about this on Twitter and then it took off and kind of went viral. Did you feel compelled to, to share your story? You know, what made you, what, what what are your intentions with putting it out there?
1: Well, so this is so funny. I did not have a large Twitter presence when I shared this story, and I honestly I thought you know my few dozen or hundred or so people that I interacted with regular regularly on Twitter would would maybe interact with this, um, but what I was responding to was an accusation that I still see everywhere, and many others uh, have to encounter as they they try to address the ideology is. You know, you conservative types and right wingers who are talking about wokeness, you don't even know what that means. And you're just using the term woke to uh, talk about anything that's on the left that you don't like. And um, mm-hmm. um, you can't even define critical race theory or you can't even define social justice. You know, and, and you're just you know, so it's this way of completely discrediting anyone who would have um, a measured reasonable uh, yeah. argument against it. You know, you may even see people like Chris Rufo, who obviously knows what critical race theory is, and and people still say to him, you don't even know what critical race theory is. Right. Or, or James Lindsay. You know, yeah, you're just, like, okay, like, this is okay. Um, or Neil Shinby who's who's reviewed every single book on the topic. Um, yeah. So it's just a way of sidelining people. But I was responding to one of those sorts of claims that I had seen a tweet where someone was making this claim of, you know, like, um, anyone who criticizes woke doesn't know what it is. And I was like, well actually, if we're talking about lived experience, here's my (laughs) lived experience (laughs) with with this ideology. And so I do understand it both um, intellectually, because I spent a lot of time trying to understand it. And then also I understand what it feels like to be um, confronted with this ideology. So that was why I shared the story, and um, it was over the course of like 24 hours that I gained over 10,000 followers. Wow! <laughs> so, so I didn't. I mean, I I did not see that coming at all. Um, yeah. And it, it's kind of sad to me because it just shows how desperate people are for encouragement. That oh, they are. That this thing can be um, successfully resisted. Yes. Um. But yeah, I mean, that's why I'm. That's why I'm now as an introvert and somebody who doesn't have any ambitions towards, you know, a public platform or anything like that. That's why I'm speaking to people like you because I do want people to be encouraged that it's possible to make a principled and humble, and I would use the word righteous stand against something that is in actuality none of those things though it's claiming to be. Grace,
0: I completely understand you.
1: I people may not uh, some of
0: the people who know me in real life. I'm one of those people who's like on the line between introversion and extroversion. But the ones who know me well know I'm an introvert. And the only reason we started doing this podcast, Carter asked me to start doing it with him, was because he had interviewed me about when I felt compelled to share my story about leaving my old ideology, and I felt compelled to write an essay about it. And at the time, I was trying to speak mostly to the people who were in, still in social justice. Um, but we did an interview. And then the only reason we do this story is because I think this ideology is very dangerous. As I mentioned, it's evil. I think it's evil. And when we started this two and a half years ago, it wasn't mainstream yet. It was on its way. You know, this has been in decades in in the works, but but it hadn't hit that acceleration point yet where now it's every corporation speaks it it's not Mm -hmm. just academia now it's you know uh it's corporate it's from the pulpit it's um in every hobby group (laughs) um with a few exceptions like fly fishing i don't think it's in fly fishing yet but (laughs) 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 it's everywhere else and uh and so i speak it because i think i keep thinking am i going to wake up one day and 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 not be compelled to talk about this anymore. And if that happens, great, we'll move on. It's not for, we don't do this show because we want uh, to have a a public facing persona of some kind. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's because it is important and this is something we can do is we can talk about it and we can have on guests like you to give your experience and to help people who are going through this. And I really hope that anybody who is dealing with this from a leadership position, in their organization, I really hope that they can gain some advice from you and um, some insights on what to do, and that you inspire them. That's the biggest thing: is people need inspiration. It's not even a list of what to do; they just need inspiration, like you said, encouragement that it can be fought. Because a lot of people, I think, have gotten demoralized. And they think, "Well, there's nothing I can do about it."
1: Absolutely, you know? yeah. And it it is there is a real sense of urgency because it is an ideological war, and the war is is not about race and sex and gender even though these are the wedges that are used to um, open people's compassionate minds to the idea that there's Mm -hmm. nothing objectively real or true and that's that's the war that's being fought is on objective truth and so it is it is a war of the utmost urgency to fight because who will suffer the most if if categories of of health and norms are erased, you know, Um, very vulnerable people will, will suffer the most. Um, So, so that is, that is what really motivated me when I began to, to look deeply into what was being suggested was, I mean, take just the gender affirmation thing, the the affirmative care. Um, It's like, I I found the, um, the D transitioners subreddit, and was was just reading their stories about how they were essentially silenced within the conversation and um all the pain that was there and um actually katie herzog's article um Mm -hmm. in the stranger in seattle about um the detransitioners and all the heat that she got from that and jesse singles work and yeah yeah and so just like wow like really vulnerable people are being are being harmed immensely in this effort to prevent harm (laughs) you know yeah
0: and ignored Um, and demonized when they talk about it have you connected with um helena on twitter she just goes by helena
1: i follow her yeah i mean yeah i don't don't think she knows who i am but i really appreciate her her perspective a lot Mm -hmm.
0: yeah i got to talk with her also and i think again here's an example of someone who is not speaking because of a, a, a desire for fame or 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 public attention but is feels compelled because it's important let me share my story with you
1: mm-hmm.
0: um and for anyone who didn't watch that interview she's she's detransitioned and she talks mm-hmm. about her story and she's the one that told me about the reddit um detransitioner forum and It's amazing how many there, if you start to look, if you start to do just a little bit of digging, you're like, whoa, there's so many of these stories and Mm -hmm. they're never talked about in the mainstream. Mm
1: -hmm. You wouldn't even know they're happening. Yeah. And Um, the books books that are written about them are banned from Amazon. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) We live in the upside down. Hey, so tell me, uh, I want to, I want to end it speaking of giving people inspiration. There's one of my favorite quotes in the past couple of years has been, um, uh this writer Wendell Berry he Mm. says be joyful be joyous though you have considered all the facts Mm. (laughs) and um I sometimes talk with people who have have are becoming more demoralized by the day because of because of the up is down down is up you know the legacy media is selling as propaganda and fake news, but we're being told that other, you know, we shouldn't listen to this over here because this is fake news. And, and it's just this sort of confusing time for people. And um, what is your source of inspiration? Because mm-hmm. you have a, you have a light about you. Mm-hmm. And what is it that keeps you from being disheartened during dark times?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, certainly as a Christian, I have a conception of a reality beyond this world and that my Mm -hmm. identity is, is not dependent on my circumstances or the way people treat me or think about me. And so in a sense, I'm freed from that need to be respected in worldly terms or to be, Mm -hmm. um, applauded or affirmed. And that's very freeing, you know? Um, I do think, you know, we obviously have to interact in the world and we can't just be um mystical floating spirits. <laughs> we have to engage with <laughs> we have to engage with people wherever they are and we have to understand everybody's ideas and, and interact with those ideas as they are. But um <clears throat> I mean it's certainly not a popular message and some would say it's naive, but prayer was what got us through a lot and um I mean, that's just honest. <laughs> so
0: I'll be honest with you. It is. Cause I'm a pretty new Christian people on our show know this. I, I don't know at what point I'll quit saying that it's been a while now, it's been a <laughs> couple of years anyway. Um, But I used to be one of these people who just, you know, I would mock when I heard thoughts and prayers. I, I would, you know, I mocked my aunt quite a bit. Um, Gosh, that still makes me teary (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, because now knowing what I know now it's like it prayer is getting me through and Mm uh so yeah I'm not surprised to hear that answer from you Mm -hmm. I also will sometimes say to people if they're not because if they're not believers I I I don't want them to write me off and it's like look I do I will I am going to tell you God in prayer Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh I have a friend who he started a hashtag called Atheist for Christ, because he said, you know, it's my Christian friends who are getting me through right now. Oh. <laughs> it's their it's their joy and it's their peace. And um, um, but I will say for people who are not believers, just uh, do something to maintain your joy, because I think mm-hmm. joy is the antidote to despair. Yeah.
1: So, something I'm really interested in is just this idea of examining your principles and not being afraid of examining them. Because if you if you do believe that there's something objectively real and true, which I'm so encouraged by the broad coalition of people who have that commitment mm-hmm. um, from every faith background and political yes. persuasion, um, I would just say then don't be afraid to examine um, everything about your presuppositions because you have them. You're operating from faith on some level. So yeah, while it's easy to mock religious people who are part of formal organized religions. Um, And often that's warranted maybe because there are plenty of people who ascribe to religions who don't examine their faith and they they operate very much in the same way that the woke do just making assertions that they have not examined. Um, But everyone is operating on faith. Everyone has presuppositions about meaning and, and ultimate purpose and morality that they are, Using on a daily basis, whether they're consciously uh, investigating those or not, they're using those those presuppositions to navigate life and to 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 live in the world, and 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 everyone has to. Um, so yeah. yeah, I mean, that's where I would just say is is lean into your presuppositions and test them because if there's a something objectively real and true, why why worry? You know that that. Mm-hmm. Um, you won't get somewhere better (laughs) by again, you know? Yeah. So self-examination.
0: I love (laughs) it. Mm -hmm. So tell people where they can find you on Twitter and anywhere, anything else that you want to promote.
1: Yeah. I'm not anywhere else online. And obviously we're, if you know, somebody wants to uh, dox me. I'm sure they will. And they have enough, they have enough evidence by now to try to figure out who I am. But um, my Twitter handle is Grace is for you.
0: Um, Well, I thank you so much for being on the show and it's very nice to meet you. I think you're inspirational. I'm, I'm just happy that you're you're being yourself and that you're doing what you feel compelled to do. And that, you know, one thing I wanted to mention earlier, I was taking notes of what you're saying and you were talking about power and truth. Power is what's at the center of social justice ideology. Mm -hmm. It's everything. They, a lot of their definitions stem from power, like, um, racism is power plus prejudice and sexism is power plus prejudice. And when um, people die, they don't say rest in peace. They say rest in power. That's mm-hmm. what they say uh, about fellow allies. Um, and I think what happened is when this invaded your organization, you're, you have a strong, you're grounded in an ideology, in a, in a belief system anyway, maybe not an ideology, but a belief system, your system of belief is centered on truth. And so those two things are very incompatible. Um, And so I think, I think, you know, it it was a perfect storm of, of, you know, you being someone who is very secure and who centers things around, okay, well then I'm going to listen to you and I am going to find the truth. And if there's a takeaway message for this, I think if people are encountering it, it maybe it's just, like you said, listen, and then try and get to the bottom of what they're saying, educate Mm -hmm. yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah. Stay open-minded.
0: Actually, open-minded.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> Curious and 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 humble. I mean, it's it's a, I, I think humility is given a bad rap as just being passive and and weak. But I think mm-hmm. I I understand humility to be, um, the effort to live in alignment with the truth at all costs. And so yes. that is what where humility will lead you is truth. At some point, is going to contradict me. And at yes. that point, will I be willing to submit to truth so yes. that's that's a humble posture um, so it doesn't mean that. it doesn't mean not having courage or not being direct and clear and strong i, I it, humility includes all of those things it's um it's the opposite of ramming through your own way or your own thought or your own perspective at all costs. It's the opposite of that, so yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. It's being willing to admit what you don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, well, thank you so much. You guys can follow Grace at Grace is for you. And um, I appreciate you spending the day with us. Have a nice day. Thank you. Beverly, Grace. that was like the most awkward ending. <laughs> <laughs> Let's let it, let the credits roll, Beverly. <laughs>
1: See you there.
2: Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to it. The following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. They are also spreading vicious lies about me. I am human just like you. Insert localized idiomatic greeting. Individual sovereignty is highly contagious. Good parents keep their children regularly vaccinated. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't think about it. I mean, that's not your job.